Let's pray before we start. Oh, it's good for us to be here, Lord. It is good for us to be reminded of your kindness and your goodness, that you do not treat us according to our sins, but you renew your mercy to us again and again and again. Truly, your mercy is more. Truly, we do not receive what we deserve. Truly, you are good and you're gracious. And I pray that the passage that you have for us today would remind us of your kindness to us. That even as your children, though we often stumble and fall, though we often run away, yet your kindness pursues us. I pray, Lord, today that you would challenge us. I pray that today you would remind us of your goodness and grace toward us. I pray that this would be an opportunity for our soul to just examine our walks before you and to see how good and kind you were to us. And may your kindness bring us to repentance. May our kindness cause us to worship you because you are good and you are merciful. And may your kindness compel us to run in obedience to you, to do what you command us to do and to walk according to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to every heart here and meet every person as only you can. We trust the Spirit of God to work in and through us in this moment for your glory. Amen. Now I should take your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. Since this is our third week, you're already familiar with the flow and the content of the book. It's not difficult to summarize the book and to understand its message. One commentator cleverly summarized the book this way. He said, chapter 1 is, I won't go. (laughs) Chapter 2, okay, I'll go. Chapter 3, here I am. Chapter 4, I knew I shouldn't have gone. (laughs) That's a good summary of the book. And today we find ourselves in chapter 1. And it's this chapter where Jonah has to say, okay, Lord, I will go. We're working our way. And as we looked at chapter 1 last week, we ended in verse 17 where Jonah was in the stomach, the great fish. I mean, of all the tight places you could be in, this is not one to be desired. But God doesn't give up easily on his plans, does he? In fact, God never gives up on his plans. And aren't you glad that God is like that? Aren't you glad, aren't you glad that God says, okay, Fine, Jonah, you don't want to go to them. I mean, I wanted to save the Ninevites, but I guess you don't want to go, so sorry, Ninevites. Sorry, Jonah. No, God does not give up on his plans. In fact, that's an awesome thing to ponder. How many times could God have given up on you and thrown in the towel? Okay, you don't want to do it? You don't want to go? Well, forget you. How many times could he have done that in your life? I know in my own life, more times than I would care to admit, and yet again and again, God shows mercy, God shows compassion, and gives chance after chance. See, we observed earlier in this book that this book is about God. This book is about His character, His sovereignty, and His compassion. They just fly off the pages of this book. He's all-powerful, and He's in control of everything Listen, God of the book of Jonah and God of the Bible is not a distant God. Notice how involved God is in the affairs of man. There is no room for deists in the Bible. 
God is not a divine clockmaker who just wound up the clock and let it go and now it runs on its own. No, we see how intimately God is involved in the affairs of men. In chapter 1, we saw God's compassion for Ninevites. And it was demonstrated by the fact that God takes his own prophet and sends him 1,500 miles away to preach the message of repentance to them. As we said last time, God did not have to do that. They were wicked, and they were deserving of judgment. And God could have just judged them, but yet he sends a prophet so that he would preach the message of repentance to them. We also know that repentance is a gift of God. You can't just repent on your own. You see, unless God gives you the gift of repentance, you will never repent. And we see in this book that the entire city repents. And we see the compassion of God in that. In chapter 2, we see again the compassion of God. And in this case, we see God's compassion to Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 17, when he ended up in the sea, he didn't drown and he didn't die within minutes. But God rescued him in an unconventional way. He rescued him because his mission was not over. Because God was not yet done with Jonah. Now with that said, I think it is still helpful to remember that though God is compassionate, and though God is gracious, God does indeed set people aside when they continue to disobey. And I think for us to have this balanced view, we need to remember that. Remember the words of Mordecai? which he sent to Esther when the entire nation was facing judgment or facing slaughter. Remember what he said in Esther chapter 4, verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I hate to break it to you, but you're not the only option that God has. And neither am I. Now, that's humbling, but that's true. That is humbling because God could have used anyone in this case. And you might think that there were better candidates than Jonah, and God could have set him aside and sent somebody else there. And yet, he, he compassionately continues to pursue Jonah. In the same way with us, we need to remember the fact that God sets people aside. But at the same time, the fact that God is compassionate and gracious is not a license for you to continue to sin against God's grace. It's not a license for that. But it is a cause for praise when God shows mercy to you again and again and again. Now, of the four chapters in this book, chapter 2 is the most distinct. And you can see that it's distinct just by looking at the format. If you look at it, your Bible, you will see that the format of this chapter is different than the rest of the book. The book is narrative, but when you come to chapter 2, chapter 2 is a psalm. And you can see that it is even formatted as a psalm. So we can say that chapter 2 is a psalm of Jonah. It is a prayer of Jonah from the inside of the fish. 
Now, most likely, these words were penned by Jonah after he already recovered and came back to his own land and wrote these words for the people to read. And perhaps these were not the exact words used by Jonah, but this was the reflection of his heart. This was the reflection of Jonah's prayer inside the belly of the fish. Now, there are numerous references in this chapter to various psalms, and we'll look at them in just a second. Many people have noticed that in times of trouble, people are drawn to the book of Psalms. And it is because those were prayers that were offered to God many times in times of trouble. This book teaches us how to relate to God. This book teaches us how to pray. And in a sense, we have this Psalm of Jonah because it does exactly the same thing. Jonah finds himself in a difficult place and he ended up there because of his own sin. And he's crying out to God. He's praying to God and he's teaching us how to do the same. This prayer of Jonah in chapter 2 follows a similar pattern to all the Psalms. As often as the case, when the Psalm opens, you have description of a distress. The psalmist describes the distress that he's in, and that's what Jonah does here. From distress, Jonah moves on to dedication. Yes, this is how bad this is right now, but he moves on to dedication. And then finally, the chapter closes with Jonah's deliverance. Now, based on this prayer, I want to argue that the Lord has compassion for his children when they call on him. That is the point of the psalm. That's what Jonah wants you to learn, that you might be like him, running away from him and sinning and being disciplined by the Lord. And yet the Lord has compassion on his children when they call upon him. We'll look at the psalm under these three headings, Jonah's distress, Jonah's dedications, and Jonah's deliverance. Join me as I read Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. From the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now I mentioned already that this is a psalm of Jonah. I want you to see how many quotations in this chapter are from the book of Psalms. Jonah references at least 10 different psalms in this book. I'll read them to you and notice the parallels to chapter 2 that we just read. Psalm 18.4 says this, The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrent of ungodliness terrified me. 
The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help before him came into his ears. Psalm 120 verse 1. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Psalm 69 Verse 1, save me, O God, for waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, and a flood overflows me. Psalm 31, 22, as for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Psalm 42, verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Psalm 5, verse 7, as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Psalm 116, verse 3, the cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I not go down to the pit. Psalm 33, verse 1. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be Upon your people. Now notice how many connections you have here from the book of Psalms to this chapter or to this prayer that Jonah prayed from the stomach of the fish. Do you think Jonah knew the Psalms? He knew the Psalms. He knew his Bible. This is a perfect example of praying God's word back to God. I mean, why do we encourage you to memorize scripture? Why do we encourage you to store it in your head? So that in times of troubles, you can go to these passages and you can remind yourself of the truth that God revealed about himself in the word of God. And you can pray those prayers back to God. I mean, you see people throughout the Bible doing that. Moses reminds, praying to God, and he's reminding God, remember what, the covenant that you made? You remember what you said? Jonah does the same thing. Remember all of these promises, all of these prayers that are in the book of Psalms that remind me of your faithfulness, of your goodness. And so I will call upon the Lord. This is an excellent example for us to pray God's word back to God. That's why you memorize it. That's why you store it in your mind. So when you find yourself in a tight place where you do not have your Bible or your scroll for Jonah in the stomach of the fish, it's still in your head. That's why we memorize, but that's a footnote. Now, some people believe that when Jonah was swallowed by the whale, he actually died and then was later brought back to life. And the reason why they argued that is because Jesus compares Jonah's stay in the belly of the fish to his stay in the tomb. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, when Jesus was placed in a tomb, he was actually dead. He was dead, dead. Now, some argue against resurrection, and they propose a swoon theory. 
that Jesus didn't actually die. He was just unconscious, and then he kind of revived and walked out of the tomb. So we know that's complete nonsense. Remember, they pierced him, the blood and water came out. So we know Jesus was dead before they placed him into that tomb. Now, because Jesus' stay in the tomb parallels Jonah's stay in the fish, some argued that he was dead, but we know that's not the case. And how do we know that that's not the case? How do we know that Jonah was not dead? Because he was praying. Look at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. From where? From the stomach of the fish. That means Jonah was alive inside the stomach of the fish in order to pray to God. I mean, I guess anyone would be doing the same thing if you found yourself in the stomach of the fish. You see, difficulties and sufferings, they draw us closer to God. We saw an example of this in chapter 1. You remember when there were these miraculous storms, what were sailors doing? Each man prayed to his God and they cried out. Jonah wasn't praying. Jonah was sound asleep. But now that he is inside the belly of the fish, he's crying out to God. God brings us in such circumstances in order to draw us to himself. You know, you might be a rebel who's running away from God and you think you got it. And God puts you in that predicament in order to bring you to yourself. In order to show you that you are not sufficient. You are not good enough. You are not strong enough that you need him. And that's exactly what he does with Jonah. Now there is a hint here in the text that Jonah did not start praying immediately. Perhaps even until the final day, because if you look at verse 7, notice he said, while I was fainting away, I remember the Lord. It's not that he, as soon as they threw him into the water, Jonah started praying. No, no. He says, you know what? While I was still alive, it was all good. When I was fainting away, that means I was almost dead. And when I was almost dead, that's when I cried out to God. Another reason why people assume that Jonah died, because you have a reference here in verse 2 to Sheol. Now, Sheol is the Old Testament word. It's for the abode of the dead. That's where the dead are. But keep in mind, this is a psalm. This is a psalm, so Jonah speaks in poetic way to describe his circumstances. And I guess if you or I were in the bottom of the sea, inside the whale, you would think you were dead. That's what Jonah says, I was almost descended to Sheol. Now, notice the relationship between Jonah and his God. Verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed... To who? To the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. Now in chapter 1, as I said, we saw sailors praying to their gods. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. When captain awoke Jonah, he says in verse 6, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. You see, pagan sailors prayed to their God, and Jonah belonged to his God. Jonah was a prophet of God. He knew God. God spoke directly to him. And even when he was disobedient, he was still his God. Notice he says at the end of verse 6, But you have brought up my life, O Lord, my God. See, if you're a child of God, God is always your God. God is always your God. Yes, He will discipline you, but He will never disown you. You see, even when you sin, even when you're running away and you find yourself in the belly of the fish, 
You can cry out to him because as Jonah tells us, he is your God. You see, for a child of God, it is never too late to pray. It is never too late. You cannot outrun the mercy of God. You cannot outrun the kindness of God. Now, it would be nice if Jonah would start praying earlier. But God had to bring him to this place so that he would cry out to him. Now, Jonah begins his prayer by acknowledging his distress. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Now, as I said, he probably penned these words after the events were completed. And so he had a little bit of time to reflect on what took place. And as he looks back, he says, listen, as I was drowning in the sea, as I was inside the fish, I cried out to the Lord. If we think of Sheol as an underground place, it's always pictured as somewhere below. And Jonah is descending to the places below. He says, it is as if I am descending alive into the place of the dead. You see, when you are there, you have no one to call to. You can't call your sailors. You can't call your mom. But you can call the Lord. And that's what Jonah does. And the amazing thing here, look at that. He says, he heard me. He answered me. How many of us, as I said before, would have given up on Jonah? Okay, no one. And yet God, so compassionate, so merciful. When Jonah got himself into that predicament, he cries out. Why? Why does he cry out? It's because the mercy of God draws him. It's because the compassion of God compels him to do it. And yes, he cries out to God, and God hears him. Jonah's disobedience got, him, disobedience got him into that predicament, and yet God still hears his plea. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Wait a minute. I thought the sailors threw him into the sea. I thought he told the sailors to throw him into the sea. But what does he say here? No, you had cast me into the deep. Jonah acknowledges that behind all of his circumstances was God. Behind it all, yes, they were primary causes of people doing and throwing and saying it, but he says, at the end of the day, behind it all stand you. He acknowledges the, acknowledges the sovereignty of God. See, Jonah would not be in that predicament if God had not permitted it to happen. God had put Jonah inside the belly of the fish to teach him a lesson. Ever wonder why you find yourself in the circumstances that you're in? Why, why did this happen to me? Why am I going through this? I mean, sure, there are many contributing factors, perhaps your sin, as in the case of Jonah. Perhaps others have sinned against you. But here's a reminder that behind all these secondary causes, God's hand is directing all things. Apart from his sovereign will, nothing happens in this universe. Especially if you are a child of God, nothing ever happens to you unless God himself signs off on it. And so Jonah acknowledges here that, Lord, you are sovereign over this situation. I am here, and I know that you know about this. We see clearly this in the book of Job. Remember, a man in the span of hours lost everything he had. Now behind it all, behind all his losses was Satan. Because you remember the conversation that he had with God. And Satan used natural and supernatural means to rob him of everything that he had. And yet listen to what Job says. Job 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and Satan has taken it away. Is that what it says? No. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, Satan was behind it all, but God signed off on it. And so Job says, yes, I know my God is in sovereign control even of this situation. He recognizes that this would not have happened had not God permitted it to happen. And God permits things to happen for his own reasons. And sometimes we do not see what those reasons are, but we can know for a fact that God is sovereignly controlling the situation that you're in, and the same God is gracious and compassionate. Now notice Jonah does not blame God, but he simply recognizes his sovereignty. And notice he uses this vivid language to describe his circumstances. His, there's depth of shield, literally a place of the dead. There's deep in the heart of the sea. He went down to the bottom of the sea. You have currents, you have waves, you have billows. I mean, this is a scary reality to experience. Two years ago, we were boogie boarding in San Diego, and as we were waiting for a wave, you know, this undercurrent just takes you away, and it takes you away, and you just can't get back. You can barely get back, so a lifeguard would come and offer us help, and you know, we were on board, so we were cool. You're staying on top of water, but with Jonah, he says, the current grabbed me, and the current pulled me underneath. Current engulfed me. It took me, and it brought me underneath underwater. The waves, he says, passed over me. Notice Jonah wasn't just thrown into the mouth of the fish. Sometimes you see these pictures, right? They're throwing Jonah off of the boat, and then there's fish with an open mouth, and they're throwing... No, that's not what happened. No, they threw him into the water. And he says, the waves grabbed me, the current grabbed me. It pulled me down to the bottom of the ocean, and then eventually, sometime, he was swallowed by a fish. And as he's sinking to the bottom of the sea, this is what he's thinking. That's it. God is done with me. God is done with me, because look at verse 4. He said, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Remember, I pointed this out earlier. Well, in chapter 1, these four times it says Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Most likely, he was not looking for a place where God was not. He was just running away from the immediate presence of God. And in a sense, Jonah says here, well, I guess I succeeded. I guess I succeeded. Now I'm gone. Now I have been thrown overboard, and I have been expelled from your sight. And notice it's not that I succeeded in running away, but no, the Lord threw me out. You have expelled me from your side. Ever felt that way? Ever felt that you've disappointed the Lord so much that he has expelled you from his side? That's what Jonah felt. But notice there's a glimmer of hope because he says, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. You see, temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And either Jonah is saying, you will rescue me from this predicament, and I will go back to my own land, and I will again enter into the temple, and I will worship you there. Or perhaps he's thinking like, yeah, I'm going to come into the presence of God. Because he's still his child. See, by verse 5, Jonah is probably in the stomach of the fish. Because in verse 5, he says, Waters encompass me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I mean, I don't know what's going on inside the belly of the fish. But this is a pretty vivid description. I mean, he's here either sitting or perhaps lying. 
and everything that the fish has in his stomach. Whatever the fish ate for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner is around him. You notice the description, he says, his head is covered with seaweed. You can imagine complete darkness. Just picture yourself, you know, turn on your sanctified imagination. And imagine what he felt, what he smelled, what he heard. The smell of seaweed, digesting food, smelly water. Everything is warm and slimy and slippery. No matter what he touches, noises of gurgling and digestion. I can go on, but I won't. And it's not like the fish just parked for three days somewhere. That's not what happened. Notice it took him for a ride because verse 6 says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Jonah could not have gone there on his own, so he had to be inside the stomach of the fish. Jonah says here, I went down to the lowest parts of the earth where the foundations of the mountains are laid. He descended into the sea caves, and he says, the earth surrounded me. I mean, here you have Jonah, the first oceanographer. I mean, who knew there were mountains there? Found out that recently, right? Relatively recently. And Jonah says, yeah, I went down there inside the stomach of the fish. And when you are there, you realize that your world is closing in on you, right? Literally. And as Jonah reflects, he says, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, if there is a pit, that would be the pit. If you go to the lowest parts of the earth, and if you think of a pit that you're thrown down below, and it's the place of the dead, and he says, I came this close to Sheol. I came this close to death, and you know what? The Lord brought my life up from the pit. Again, notice the emphasis on relationship. Lord, my God. The Lord, my God, brought me up. I mean, what a vivid description of distress. And you know what? Sometimes in order to get a hold of you, God has to put you in such predicament. God has to put me in such predicament. Because you see, Jonah could have avoided all this trouble if he simply obeyed the first time and went to Nineveh. And yet he had to go through this. When his life is hanging by a thread, there is still hope. And you know what? When you feel like that, or perhaps when you find yourself in such predicament, you can still do what Jonah does here. As long as your life has not expired, you can cry out to the Lord your God. And again, this is here to remind us that our God is compassionate and gracious. No matter how deep your distress is, God's mercy and compassion is available to you. But we see here not only his distress, we also see his dedication in verses 7 through 9. In verse 7 he says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. See, Jonah's life is hanging by a thread. And it is at that moment where he cries out to the Lord. And notice he says here, I, I remember the Lord. I remember the Lord. Jonah knew the character of God. In fact, it is because he knew the character of God, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. But now he says, I remember the Lord. And what did he remember? He remembered that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now that he needs his mercy, he says, I remember the Lord. 
I remember the Lord. Now, the concept of remembering in the Old Testament, it's not just like, oh, this thought came to my mind. Have you thought about thinking about the Lord? That's not what happened. When Scripture talks about remember the Lord, remind yourself of who He is, it means that you're acting on what you recall. All this time, Jonah knew of the Lord. All this time, Jonah knew of his presence, and yet he wasn't calling upon him. But now he says, I remember the Lord. Because you see, simply recalling something about God does you no good unless you cry out to him. And when he says, I remember the Lord, it means I called upon the Lord. I called upon him. I called upon his character. See, that's why it's so vital for you to know the character of God. You see, if you have a warped understanding of God, that he's just there in heaven to whack you every time you sin, you will tend to run away from him rather than running to him. And Jonah says, I know the Lord. I know that the Lord is compassionate and the Lord is gracious. And I need to remind myself of that again and again and again. And especially it is in those times when you run away, when your flesh tells you to run away, that he doesn't want to see you anymore, that he's angry with you, that he kicked you out. When the devil will tell you those things, rather than running away from him, you need to remember the Lord, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, and he's calling you to come back. You see, you might be in the depth of the sea, but when you remember that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, you call to him. And notice he says, he heard me in this temple. Now, verse 9 and 10, they show us a contrast between the worshipers of idols and the worshipers of Yahweh. Now, we have to concede that verse 9 is, or verse 8 is challenging to interpret because he says here, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. We're like, what? Two translations that are helpful here. Perhaps you have ESV. ESV puts it this way. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that Bible puts it this way. Those who worship worthless idols forfeit, forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. Here's what Jonah is saying. If I were to cry out to idols, I would not receive mercy. And the reason why I would not receive mercy because idols do not hear and idols do not respond. You remember when sailors cried to their gods? What was the response? There was no response. Because they can't hear. Because they don't exist. Because they're just representation of demons and they're not going to come and help you. And so what he's saying here, if I were to cry out to an idol, if I were to cry out to some kind of an image, I would not receive mercy. I would not have received compassion. Why? Because first of all, they can't hear, and the devil who is behind them is not merciful and is not compassionate. If he could kill you, he will kill you. He cannot respond. But he says, I will pray to the Lord. Therefore, Jonah says, verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. See, Jonah promises that he will bring a sacrifice. And why does he do that? Because this is the Old Testament. You sin, what do you do? You bring sacrifice. Which means that Jonah acknowledges his sin he recognizes that he has sinned against the Lord. And so he says, I am calling upon the Lord, and I am telling the Lord, Lord, forgive me, and when I show up back to your temple, I am going to come with a sacrifice. I have sinned against you. And he says, I will offer a public praise of you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will offer my sacrifice. Notice Jonah also makes vows. Not sure exactly what he promised the Lord, but he made vows. 
that, Lord, if you deliver me out of this, I'm going to go to Nineveh and I'm going to do whatever else you tell me to do. And he concludes his prayer with a statement that is key to understanding this book. Not only this book, but the entire Bible. Salvation is from the Lord. If you were to literally translate, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the exact phrase we read in Psalm 3, where it says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Now, this is not just key for this book, but this is the key for the whole Bible. Listen to these declarations that God makes about himself. Isaiah 43, 11, I... Even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 45, 21, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Hosea 13, 4, yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any other gods except me, for there is no Savior besides me. See, this is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There is no salvation in anyone else but the Lord. Remember how the Bible starts? God creates Adam and Eve, places them in a garden, and not too long after, we have the fall. And immediately, as soon as they sin against God, God gives a promise of deliverance. Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to a serpent, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is the first gospel presentation in the Bible. God is promising that one would come who would bring deliverance and bring destruction to Satan. As the story progresses, we know that God chooses Abraham. And we've worked through this in the book of Galatians, and God chooses this man, and God promises that from him a seed would come that would bring blessing to all the nations. Genesis 22, 18 says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that constitute the nation of Israel. These 12 tribes are going into Israel, are going into Egypt, and they spend 400 years there when God delivers them and brings them out of Egypt and brings them into their promised land. Eventually, God gives them a king, King David. David becomes a king, and God promises that his descendant will sit on the throne forever. And the rest of the Old Testament history is just an outworking of that promise. God continues to preserve the nation of Israel so that a day would come when that seed would be born. And through their sin and through their disobedience, God shows mercy and compassion to them because the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7 must be fulfilled. That's why when you come to the New Testament, it opens with the genealogy, with a bunch of names that we tend to skip, but there is a point to them. That genealogy points back to that promise. He takes Christ back and he says, remember that Jesus Christ is the seed of David, and he's the seed of Abraham. He takes him all the way back and says, remember those promises that God made? Well, it's going to be fulfilled. This one is going to come, and this one is going to bring salvation to all. And Jesus begins his ministry 30 years later. 
and he starts to preach the same message. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As we pointed out before, Jesus did not say, I am a way, I am a truth, or I am a life. No, I am the way. I am the only one that can give you salvation. That is the message that Jesus preached, and that is the message that his disciples preached after his ascension. Acts chapter 4, verse 2, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. See, this is the message of the Bible from beginning to end. It clearly declares that there is salvation in only one, and that one is God himself. There is no other God, and there is no salvation in no one else. Vain idols cannot deliver or save. But Yahweh can and does. That's why Jonah cries out to the Lord. Because he recognizes that. Because he knows the history. Because he knows the promises. And so he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord hears. Now if the book ended here, it would seem that Jonah made a complete turnabout. Would it not? But we read chapter 4. You know that in chapter 4, Jonah will throw a pity party for himself. He'll be angry with God because of the mercy that he's going to show to Ninevites. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jonah was greatly displeased. Jonah is greatly displeased with God. I guess we can say that Jonah did not learn everything he needed to learn while he was in the stomach of the fish. But he did acknowledge some things. He acknowledged his sin because he said he's going to bring a sacrifice. He acknowledged God. He acknowledged that God is the Savior and has a prerogative to save. And he prayed for his mercy. He prayed for his compassion and the Lord heard. You see, there is something here for us. Because in many ways we are just like Jonah. We are slow learners. And God is a patient teacher. I mean, God, could have, God knew that Jonah didn't learn everything he needed to learn. He could have said, well, listen, you didn't repent enough. You're not good enough. Sorry, I can't deliver you. But no, he didn't learn everything, and yet God shows mercy. He dedicates himself to the Lord and says, Lord, if you will deliver me from this, I will do what you command me to do. And the Lord was moved by his prayer. Let's finally look at Jonah's deliverance. Well, the first aspect of Jonah's deliverance was the fact that he was swallowed by a fish. Now, in many ways, it seems to us like a horror story rather than deliverance. But Jonah wouldn't have survived had he not been swallowed by a fish. So in that sense, that was deliverance of the Lord, where he had three days to think about his life and his actions. But come to verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Yes, God can command a fish. God did command a fish to swallow him. And now God commands the fish to vomit him out. Spurgeon joked that the fish that swallowed Jonah was Armenian. Because as soon as he said salvation belongs to the Lord, it vomited him out. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, this is not a beautiful picture. We'll talk about it next time, but Jonah was assigned to Ninevites. 
But if the fish wanted to digest you for three days, what do you think you'd look like? That's what happened to Jonah. It's not a beautiful picture. But Jonah is back in the dry land. We'll begin chapter 3 next time, and you will see that in chapter 3, verse 1, it starts exactly the same way as chapter 1, verse 1. Jonah's back to square one. Jonah could have avoided all the perils of chapter 1 and 2 if he only obeyed the first time. You see, disobedience results in discipline. I think it's here so that we learn from other people's mistakes rather than repeat them and learn on our own. Jonah is writing this and he says, hey guys, you're going to be back to square one. You're just going to have to go around like this three days in the fish. And you're going to be back to square one. Don't disobey. As we draw our time to the end, what do we learn from this? We've made numerous applications already. But here are some obvious takeaways from this chapter. Number one, recognize that salvation is only in the Lord. I think that's the message of this entire book. Spiritual salvation comes only through Christ. You see, if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not cried out to God, you have no salvation. No amount of good works will suffice. You see, there is only one payment that God accepts, and that is the payment, perfect payment of His Son. And unless you come to Him through His Son, you have no access. Jesus says, you cannot come to the Father except through Me. Salvation is from the Lord. Not only that, we can extend this further and we can say that physical deliverance is also from the Lord. Now, he uses different means. He can use fish. He can use doctors. He can use whatever he needs to use in order to bring you deliverance. But ultimately, if you're going to be delivered from your peril, from your trouble, from your sufferings, it's going to be because the Lord extends grace and compassion to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, unless the Lord extends grace, you and everyone else is working in vain. That's why you cry out to the Lord, because He is the one who saves. Number two, run to the Lord when you've sinned against Him. I think that's what this chapter is telling us. Your conscience, or perhaps your devil, the devil, and perhaps some people around you will tell you that you've outsinned God's grace. They will tell you God doesn't want to see you anymore. And you see, when you hit rock bottom, just like Jonah did in this chapter, you have a choice. What are you going to do next? Are you going to wallow in your pity? Or are you going to go to God? Are you going to run away from God or are you going to run to Him? Jonah understood that he was where he was because of his own sin and yet he cried out to God. You see, while you have breath, don't ever think that you have outsinned God's grace. Run back to God. Jonah does, and God hears. God disciplines his children, but he disciplines in order to bring you back, not to push you away. You have nowhere else to go. In John chapter 6, when Jesus was saying some difficult things to his disciples, and many walked away from him. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey, you do not want to walk away also. And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words 
of eternal life. And when you are in trouble, when you are in distress, to whom are you going to go? The one who controls all things and the one who is sovereign over all things, he invites you and he calls you to come. So don't run away from him, but run to him. And you will do that when, number three, you remember the grace and compassion of God. You see, in this chapter, Jonah personally experiences mercy and compassion of God. Yes, he's slow to show mercy to others, as we'll see in chapter 4. But God doesn't deal with his children according to their sins. I mean, we read Psalm 130 and we sang Psalm 130. When we said that, Lord, if you were to deal with us according to our sins, who could stand? No one could stand. So God treats us not because we're so good, but because he is so good. God shows mercy and compassion to us. And you see, let that knowledge of God draw you to him. Let that knowledge of the kindness and goodness of God invite you in. Because that's why this is here. He's gracious and compassionate to us when we stumble. And even when we deliberately sin. Notice the story of Jonah. It wasn't about, you know, he just wasn't aware. And he just fell. That's not what happened. Jonah deliberately wanted to run away as far as he can from his commission. You see, even when we deliberately sin against God and do what he commands us not to do or, do or not do what he commands us to do, this chapter is here to remind us that your God is gracious and compassionate. Yes, he will discipline, but he does so in order to draw you back to himself. When you're down, you have only one place to look up. That is to him. That is to the Lord. But guess what? You don't have to wait until you're on the bottom of the sea. I think this is here to tell us, Jonah's like, hey guys, I did it. The Lord was compassionate, but don't follow me. Cry to the Lord before that. Whatever you are today, maybe you're just started to run away from the Lord. Maybe you just turn about and you're going somewhere. He says, no, stop. Stop. Cry out and he will find you. Whatever you are today. Wherever you find yourself today, remember the compassion and the grace of God. And as you walk away from here, remember that He's waiting for you. In fact, He's chasing you. He's pursuing you. Because in this chapter, it wasn't that God just, you know, sitting there in the corner. He's like, hey, whenever you want, come. No, God was arranging all these events to draw Jonah to Himself. And that's what God does. That's what His grace does. So today the Lord is pursuing you wherever you are. If you are pursuing the Lord, Lord, pursue Him still more. If you are running away from Him, stop, turn around, cry to Him, and He will hear and He will deliver. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You are so abundant in Your mercy. I pray that these truths would lodge deep in our heart so that we would remember them as we walk away from here. That our God is gracious and compassionate. And he invites us to come back to him. I ask that we would do that. I ask that we would not follow in the steps of Jonah, but obey the first time. Thank you that you pursue us even when we don't. Thank you that you are not like us, but help us to be more like you. For your glory. Amen.